Chapter Nineteen of North Pole Voyages by Zaharia A. Mudge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nineteen: Seeking the Eskimo. December twenty-fifth came, and our ice-bound, darkness-enshrouded, sick or in measure health-broken explorers tried to make it a merry Christmas. They all sat down to dinner together. There was more love than with the stalled ox of former times, but of herbs none. They tried at least to forget their discomforts in the blessings they still retained, and to look hopefully on the long distance and the many conflicts between them and their home and friends. Immediately after Christmas a series of attempts were commenced to open a communication with the Eskimo at Etah, ninety-one miles away. The supply of fresh meat was exhausted, the traps yielded nothing, and Hunt's hunting could not go on successfully in the dark. The scurvy-smitten men were failing for the want of it, and so everything must be periled to make the journey. The first thing to be done was to put the dogs, if possible, into travelling order. They were now few in number, for fifty had died, and the survivors had been kept on short rations. Their dead companions, which had been preserved in a frozen state, were boiled and fed to them for fresh food. Dog did eat dog, and relished and grew stronger on the diet. Dr. Kane and Peterson made the first attempt, starting on the 29th of December. They had scarcely reached the forsaken huts of Anatuk, the wind-loved spot, so often used as a resting place, when the dogs failed. A storm with a bitter pelting snowdrift, confined them a while. An incident occurred here, one of the many which happened to the explorers, which shows plainly the unseen but ever-present eye and hand which attended them. They were just losing themselves in sleep when Peterson shouted, Captain Kane, the lamp's out! His commander heard him with a thrill of horror. The storm was increasing, the cold piercing, and the darkness intense. The tinder had become moist and was frozen solid. The guns were outside, to keep them from the moisture of the hut. The only hope of heat was in relighting the lamp. A lighted lamp and heat they must have. Peterson tried to obtain fire from a pocket pistol, but his only tinder was moss, and after repeated attempts he gave it up. Dr. Kane then tried, he says, Quote, by good luck I found a bit of tolerably dry paper in my jumper, and becoming apprehensive that Peterson would waste our few percussion caps with his ineffectual snappings, I took the pistol myself. It was so intensely dark that I had to grope for it, and in doing so touched his hand. At that instant the pistol became distinctly visible, a pale bluish light, slightly tremulous but not broken, covered the metallic parts of it, the barrel, lock and trigger. The stock, too, was clearly discernible, as if by the reflected light, and, to the amazement of both of us, the thumb on two fingers with which Peterson was holding it, the creases, wrinkles and circuit of the nails, clearly defined upon the skin. The phosphorescence was not unlike the ineffectual fire of the glow-worm. As I took the pistol my hand became illuminated also, and so did the powder-rubbed paper, 
when I raised it against the muzzle. The paper did not ignite at the first trial, but the light from it continuing, I was able to charge the pistol without difficulty, rolled up my paper into a cone, filled it with moss sprinkled over with powder, and held it in my hand while I fired. This time I succeeded in producing flame, and we saw no more of the phosphorescence. End quote. When the storm subsided, they made further experiment to reach Etah. But dogs and men found the wading impossible, and they returned to the brig, the dogs going ahead and the men walking after them. They made the forty-four miles of their circuitous route in sixteen hours. Thus closed the year 1854. The three following weeks were mainly occupied by Dr. Kane in a careful preparation for another attempt to reach Etah, this time with Hans. Old Yellow, one of the five dogs on which success in a measure depended, stalked about the deck with his back up, as much as to say, I must have more to eat if I am going. Jenny, a mother dog, had quite a family of little ones. Yellow, being very hungry and not seeing the use of such young folks, gobbled one of them down before his master could say, don't you? Dr. Kane taking the hint, and thinking that the puppies would not be dogs soon enough for his use, shared with Yellow the rest of the litter. So both grew stronger for the journey. The next year, 1855, came in with a veil of darkness over the prospects of our explorers. The sick list was large, and threatened to include the whole party. A fox was caught occasionally, and beyond this stinted supply, there was no fresh meat. On Tuesday, January 23rd, the commander and Hans, with the dog team, turned their faces towards the Eskimo. All went well for a while, until hope rose of accomplishing the journey, getting savory walrus, and cheering their sinking comrades. Suddenly, Big Yellow, in spite of nice puppy soup, gave out and went into convulsions. Tudla, the next best animal, failed soon after. The moon went down, and the dark night was upon the best set, but not confounded heroes. Groping for the ice foot, they trudged fourteen wretched hours, and reached the old igloo at Anatuk. The inevitable storm arose, with its burden of snow driven by a strange, moistening southeast wind, burying the hut deep and warm. The temperature rose seventy degrees. An oppressive sensation attacked Dr. Kane and Hans, and alarming symptoms were developed. Water ran down from the roof, the doctor's sleeping bag of furs was saturated, and his luxurious eider-down, God's wonderful cold defire, was a wet swab. After two days in this comfortless hut, the storm having subsided, they once again pushed towards Etah. Their sick, failing comrades were the spur to this desperate effort. But it was in vain, for the deep, moist snow, the hummocks and the wind, defied even desperate courage. They returned to the hut and spent another wretched night. In the morning, in spite of short provisions, exhaustion, continued snowing, they climbed the ice foot, and for four haltless hours faced toward the Eskimo. But in vain. Dr. Kane says, My poor Eskimo Hans, 
adventurous and buoyant as he was, began to cry like a child. Sick, worn out, strength gone, dogs fast and floundering, I am not ashamed to admit that, as I thought of the sick men on board, my own equanimity was at fault. Dr. Kane scrambled up a familiar hill that was near and reconnoitred. He was delighted to see, winding amongst the hummocks, a level way. He called Hans to see it. With fresh dogs and fresh supplies, they could certainly reach Etah. So, after another night at the hut, they returned to the brig, comforting the sick with the assurance that success would come on the next trial. The months closed with only five effective men, including the commander, and of these some were about as much sick as well. Dr. Kane could not be spared from his patients, so February 3rd, Peterson and Hans tried another Etah adventure. In three days they returned, with a sorrowful tale from poor Peterson of heroic efforts ending in exhaustion and defeat. But God always sent many rays of light through the densest darkness, besetting our explorers to cheer them and inspire hope. The yellow tints of coming sunlight were at noonday faintly painted on the horizon. The rabbits prophesied the spring by appearing abroad, and two were shot. They yielded a pint of raw blood, which the sickest drank as a grateful cordial. Their flesh was also eaten raw and with great thankfulness. Following these moments of comfort came a dismal and anxious night. Thick clouds overspread the sky, a heavy mist rendered the darkness appalling, followed by the drifting snow and a fearful storm. The wind howled and shrieked through the rigging of the helpless, battered brig, as if in mockery of her condition and the sufferings of her inmates. Goodfellow had gone inland with his gun during the brief day, and had not returned. Roman candles and blue lights were burned to guide him homeward. Altogether it was a night to excite superstitious fears of the sailors, and they proved to be not beyond the reach of such fears. Tom Hickey, the cook, having been on deck while the gale was in its full strength, to peer into the darkness for him, ran below declaring that he had seen Godfellow moving cautiously along the land ice and jump down on the floe. He hurried up his supper to give the tired messmate a warm welcome, but no one came. Dr. Kane went out with a lantern, looked carefully around for some hundreds of yards, but found no fresh footsteps. Tom seriously insisted that he had seen Godfellow's apparition. Such was the state of things when one of the sailors went on deck. There was hanging in the rigging an old sealskin bag containing the remnant of the ship's furs. Its ghostly appearance in ordinary darkness had been the occasion of much jesting. Now, to the excited imagination of the sailor, it pounded the mast like the gloved fist of a giant boxer, glowed with a ghastly light, and muttered to him an unearthly story. He did not stop to converse with it, but hastened below, with the expression of his fears. His messmates laughed and jeered at his tale, but their merriment was but the whistling to inspire their own courage. The morning came, and so did Godfellow, none the worse for his night's experience. 
The storm subsided. Hans killed three rabbits. They all tasted a little and felt better, and the sealskin bag was never known from that time to utter a word. Fears may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Dr. Kane devoutly remarks, See how often relief has come at the moment of extremity. See still more, how the back has been strengthened to its increasing burden, and the heart cheered by some unconscious influence of an unseen power. End of chapter 19